Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four color realm. In this episode, we've got 60 bright shining candles lit, thanks Johnny, on a multi-tiered Fantastic Four birthday cake. To help us blow, we have a bevy <laughs> of party guests acting as our love experts to share their insights into what makes Fantastic Four number one such a milestone. It's our Fantastic Four 60th anniversary extravaganza, everybody. Insert air horn. Pew, pew, pew. Pow, pow, power wheels. (laughs) This is super exciting. It's something we haven't really done before. We've had creators on the show. We've done interviews. But this is more of a, uh, like, an NPR-like program where we are talking to multiple creators and stitching their sound bites together to form a cohesive narrative, hopefully. It's meant to be, like, an audio essay and a lot of work even before we sat down at the mics went into this episode it was a lot of scheduling and these people are really cool so a lot of uh, mediating butterflies in our tum-tums. Right, right, right. <laughs> and and then, you know, once we did all these conversations, Lisa and I had to go in and chop up those interviews into, like, segments that flow well together. So we just finished this massive scripting thing, which we normally don't do on the show, and there were some challenges between Lisa and I. Yeah, well, because, of course, we both have our individual point of views and how we think things should flow and go. But I think we handled it pretty well as a couple. We still love each other. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what we have come up with here because the Fantastic Four have become one of my favorite franchises, my favorite groups of characters, my favorite personalities. And it was a process to get to this realm of love. And I think that goes the same for you, Lisa. Absolutely. And so now that we're here at the 60th anniversary of their creation, we had to throw a massive party to this family. We've already had Reed and Sue on our counseling couch. Episodes 65 through 68 is all about their relationship. This is us kind of putting ourselves on the couch as fans, as a comic book community, to take time to like look into our relationship with the Fantastic Four and what it really means to us as comic book consumers. Yeah, and so we have love experts like we always do. It's just that this week they happen to be comic book creators. So 60 years ago, on August 8th, 1961, the Fantastic Four number one hit newsstands and changed everything we know about comics. We've talked a lot about this book lately. We did a whole series on Reed Richards and Sue Storm, and we dug deep into those first critical six issues. Last year, we had Tom Scholey on the pod talking Jack Kirby and his biography, The King of Comics. Earlier this year, we had Abraham Reisman on the show discussing his Stanley biography, True Believer, and we've waged the war regarding who did what on the Fantastic Four number one. 
That's not why we're here today. We're here to celebrate this incredible comic, this landmark moment that forever altered the comic book industry, giving birth to the Marvel Universe as we know it today, and, in effect, our pop culture universe that we're thriving in right now. Yeah, so we've grown to love these characters and these big, bold ideas found written in the earliest pages of this comic, and that's why we got on the phone with some of our comic creator friends. Helping us commemorate the occasion are Fantastic Four grand design cartoonist Tom Scholey back on the show, Marvel's executive editor and senior vice president Tom Brevoort, Stan and Jack comic creator Pete Dory, superstar writer-artist Daniel Warren Johnson, and Extreme Carnage scribe Clay McLeod Chapman. Talking FF with these folks was an incredible treat, and we're just so eager to share with you what they had to say about Marvel's first family. Just so you know, if you are enjoying these little snippets of conversation in this episode, these conversations are available to you in their entirety in our Patreon feed. Yeah, covering our bases, but also wanting to like maintain these chats because they are so incredible, and I don't want to lose a sentence from them. And we we are taking people's words out of context. Yeah. So we want to make that context available to you for the integrity of the conversation. And if you're like, but Brad and Lisa, I don't want to pay the one measly dollar to join your Patreon. That's okay. We have unlocked the Tom Brevoort conversation for all to listen to. So click the link in the show notes, head on over there and listen to the whole chat. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's time to get on the couch, put our fandom on the couch mm. and look at the Fantastic Four and our relationship relationship with them. Of all of the creators we spoke to, we related the most to Tom Scholey's first impressions of the Fantastic Four before he had actually picked up the comic book because from the outside uh, the Fantastic Four just came across as a little, like, boring and milk toast. Yeah, I think when you first see them, and, you know, in both for Lisa and myself, our first encounter with the Fantastic Four wasn't with the comic books, but was with the movies mm-hmm. and the cartoons. And for whatever reason, they didn't connect with us. And it took us the turning of the pages and finding the right Fantastic Four stories before we connected to them as characters. So what you're going to hear now is three voices all talking about their first impressions of the Fantastic Four. So you're going to hear Tom Scholey, followed by Tom Brevoort, then Clay McLeod Chapman. You know, like like the Fantastic Four, it was a little too safe, a little too Norman Rockwell, a little too comfy. And then, you know, just, just down the road, you have the X-Men, which have all that kind of, they have the uh, unresolved uh, romantic triangles and, and, um, and, and like a danger to them. And so, like, the X-Men were just so much more appealing to me, you know, uh, than the Fantastic Four. Like, Fantastic Four almost felt like DC, and X-Men felt like Marvel. Um, but then, yeah, you go to those early issues, and X-Men is kind of just riffing on those sort of themes that were in the early Fantastic Four. The early Fantastic Four was a lot more like X-Men. did have unresolved romantic triangles, had a sense of danger. You weren't sure what's up with them. Like if they are good guys or bad guys, you know, like, I mean, the text is pretty reassuring about, you know, these guys having like good motives and stuff, but, um, you know, just, just the story that's told in the pictures and, and also like the, the historical context, like if you were reading this in 1961 and, and putting it next to your Superman comic, these guys did seem pretty dangerous. They did seem like they were going to set your house on fire. You know, they did seem, you know, like they, they had a little mystique. So if I'm only going to do 
a you know a, like basically like a, a large like one shot of the Fantastic Four. I want to keep that energy going as long as possible. So I made that sort of like an ongoing thing through the whole series. I think the Fantastic Four, even in a modern context, and it's a it's a weird thing because it's such a product of its era. It's such a product of the '60s. Um, yeah, and and it's sort of a cliche to say like they're the per- it's the perfect nuclear family sort of comic, but it's it's got a core cast of characters, only four of them, um, but they they sort of are to to use uh, movie making uh, terminology, it, they're they're sort of a four quadrant picture, um, you know there there are there's a character there that kind of can cover almost any point of view that. Uh, you know, people may may have coming into things, not perfectly and not all universally, but but there's there's something that relates to the human experience. Everybody, as far as I know, has has families. <laughs> um, you know, whether they know them or not, whether they get along with them or not, whether they're the families that they create and the unions that they find with other people, or whether they are literal blood relations. Uh, and and Fantastic Four is that. Combined with, uh, you know, when it's at its best, the the most uh, forward-looking and and sort of positive utopian uh, expansion of of knowledge and uh, 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 ideas, concepts uh, that there is. I mean, it had to have been when I was a kid. Like you know, like it's it's that you know you you. They, they they were so <laughs> like I just remember seeing that that the kind of family dynamic like the four of them like always kind of like like they were always kind of tethered together by like one rubber limb or something like they were always so tight and uh, I just like as a kid I was like oh this this is like some weird kind of like Swiss Family Robinson kind of Robinson I, I don't know like it just felt like. There was something so kind of young, youthful, wholesome to it. And again, Fantastic Four, like you said, it was a family comic, and like I wasn't looking for that at that at that point. You know, I, it, I, yeah, it was like like I related to Spider Man, and when when the Fantastic Four would show up in a comic for me, it would be like a Spider Man comic, and just like the, um, the just like the Thing comic that I mentioned earlier, when they'd show up in a Spider-Man comic, they'd be there to scold him and tell him everything he's doing wrong and how he needs to watch behind his ears and all that kind of stuff. Total bummers. Like not, not, at, you know, not something you want in your comic when you're a kid to be, to be quite honest. And um, so like the, the I, I think another thing for me that kind of, uh, got me to like start appreciating Fantastic Four was Alan Moore did that 1963 series and there was Mystery Incorporated and even though I wasn't super well versed in the Fantastic Four it was very obvious to me that that's what he was doing he was doing a Fantastic Four riff and I thought Mystery Incorporated were super cool I'm like yeah this is really neat I like this so it kind of you know in, in a sideways manner kind of gave me like a, a little more of like an appreciation of the Fantastic Four. And then I got my hands on another treasury. It was like the Fantastic Four treasury, the one that reprinted the, the Galactus saga with the Silver Surfer. And then like that treasury, it was like, you know, love from then on. It was like, that's where I fell in love with the Fantastic Four. And, and, and I got it and, and kind of saw like you know, like like those those the comics that are reprinted in there are like a really smart, really good 
cross-section of Fantastic Four and kind of forms the spine of, of my book of Fantastic Four Grand Design. Like they, they were really well chosen. And, and yeah, I just sort of, you know, went from there. I love hearing Tom Scholey reference Mystery Incorporated and Alan Moore and everything that Rick Veach and Stephen Bissett were doing with that book as helping him understand the appeal of the Fantastic Four, because that's sort of the same thing for me as well. You know, we had seen the cartoons and the movies and what have you, but it took Mark Wade and Jonathan Hickman and their runs on the Fantastic Four to finally crack the appeal beyond the larger idea of Marvel's first family and these cosmic adventurers. I didn't really give the Fantastic Four a fair shake until it was required reading for this podcast. Yeah, sure. Um, because when I'd see them bubble up in other comics, I understood, okay, the shorthand of they're a family. And that's that's the husband and that's the wife. And I get this. Yeah. And like that idea of them being cosmic explorers, you know, it is a very Star Trek like comic. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's always been so rooted in 1961 that I never gave the people who came after Kirby and Lee any attention. But that's the thing that I find so fascinating is how like you take this thing that is so 1960s and then you have to permutate it yeah. to make it relevant in its time but still have this sense of continuity which i think inherently creates dynamic characters who are always in conflict with their history which i find so Interesting and engaging. But hard to market to a new audience. Yes, especially a new audience who thinks they understand completely what they're getting. Yeah, until they start reading it. And so now we're going to bring Pete Dory onto the show, the creator of Stan and Jack. And if you have not read Stan and Jack, you should really give it a try. It's a really adorable, fun, nostalgic, but mostly fun comic book that takes the personalities of Stanley and Jack Kirby and puts them on adventures the way that that old classic what if the Marvel bullpen was the Fantastic Four like Pete Dory does that for Stanley and Jack Kirby plus all the other characters around them like Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith and all that all those cool guys. So what you're going to hear now is Pete Dory talking about what it was like for him to be introduced to the Fantastic Four in England in the 70s. And then he'll be joined by the voices of Tom Scholey and Tom Brevoort talking about the uh, the general appeal of the Fantastic Four. No, no, it was, uh, I mean, everybody of my generation in the UK will give you exactly the same answer, which is that we all read FF and first saw Jack Kirby, October 1972 which was, before that point, we had our own sort of homegrown comics. Um, and British comics are generally anthologies with several serials in them, come out weekly. Um, so we were kind of happy with those and the odd DC that occasionally came in. No Marvel came in at all, as I say, until October 72. And then they released The Mighty World of Marvel Weekly, which had um, the Hulk, Spidey, and FF every week. So we were just completely blown away by that, as everybody who sees Kirby for the and Ditko for the first time is. It was just, I can't, couldn't believe comics could be like that, that exciting. 
Um, and we were there every week <laughs> forever. And then my introduction to the Fantastic Four was like, it was always on the periphery. Like, I think the first time I encountered them, there was like a, a thing comic where it was like the thing trapped in some kind of like Pac-Man game. So that appealed to me. I loved Pac-Man. So I got, the, and I heard of the thing from the thing Saturday morning cartoon. So I grabbed that. And then, yeah, there's these like fantastic four characters who are kind of on the periphery. And I didn't really like them as much. Like the, the thing was really cool. And then the fantastic four, like the other characters seem like bummers. They seem like they were always trying to hold the thing back trying to keep him from having fun. You know, they were the grown up characters. So like as a kid, of course, I'm relating to this, this like overgrown baby that, that Ben Grimm sometimes is. And so that was, that was like my first introduction. I never saw the Fantastic Four Saturday morning cartoon when I was a kid. If I had, I'm sure I'd have like a very different relationship with Fantastic Four. And because I've seen it, you know, as an adult and it's pretty great. Those, those Alex Toth ones. To me, Fantastic Four number one, is um, it's like an easy sell. Like, like I feel like um, it, it has aged really well. And it's, it's one of the great comics of all time. It's Fantastic Four number one. It's pretty, it, it kind of gets you going, um, you know, gives you the essentials. And it's told in an interesting way. It's not just like A, B, C, D. It's got, you know, flashbacks and... Um, you know, media's res and, you know, like it, it kind of jumps around in time. Like it, like it feels, it, it feels very modern and very timeless. Um, like, and, and it's been, you know, reprinted a number of times. And, and even like, I remember, you know, back in maybe like the late nineties, early two thousands, they would put out these like little tiny editions that were maybe like a dollar in like, that would be in like a gas station or something in black and white. And it, I thought like it translated really well in that it's a very complete start to finish story. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's like the first modern comic. Like it, it, it really nails that Marvel formula right out of the gate. Um, it's just like the series, like after that first issue, the series kind of like stumbles and fumbles and it has great moments, but then, you know, a lot of just the normal um, you know, comics having to like churn things out in a fast way, you know, it, it kind of, um, that, that's where I think you would like maybe lose a new reader, but, but issue one in and of itself, like, you know, get that in as many people's hands as you can, because I, I, I think it, I think it's dynamite. I think it's awesome. Um, you know, I, I, uh, just, just all the stories that are in that first Marvel treasury, like just reprint that Marvel treasury, you know, it's, it's all there. Like, I think, I think that's, that, that would, you know, sell like new reader on the, on the original stuff. I mean, those first few issues, they didn't really know what they were doing clearly and they didn't know what they had. Um, but once they realized what they had, bang, you were away. It's one of the most creative periods just in a single run, as we all say, you know, the Inhumans, the Black Panther, Galactus, the Surfer, it goes on and on and on, doesn't it? There were a lot of references. These were uh, Roy Thomas written issues. Uh, so there were lots of references to other things that I didn't necessarily understand, but I could understand they were references. There's a reference like three pages in to something that happened in Fantastic Four 11. Fantastic Four 11 was published in 1963. <laughs> so the idea that that I would have to have some familiarity with the events of of this this comic from you know, uh, more than a decade before I was born was, 
uh, uh, strange but fascinating to me. Even figuring things out like that guy's name is Reed Richards. Like I knew Richard as a first name, but not a last name. And I'd never heard the name Reed as a first name. So I kept going like, shouldn't it, shouldn't he be like Richard Reed? Why is this? And I'd have these, I'd have kind of this, these questions. Uh, but that in a sense was part of what appealed to me about entering that universe. But also, Tom, let's be real. As much as we love Fantastic Four as a concept, we love Fantastic Four as a showcase and a big coming out party for Jack Kirby. What I love about the upcoming segments is you get to hear how Jack Kirby resonated with actual artists and how his art stood out in a way that made them curious as readers of who's making this stuff and and beginning to divorce the idea of the pictures and the words. Yeah, and so when you look at those early issues of the Fantastic Four, and more importantly, those comics that are around Fantastic Four at that time, and Marvel has recently launched this omnibus called Marvel August 1961, which publishes or reprints all the comics that came out at the same time as Fantastic Four number one. And you see a lot of really great comics, but guess what? It also shows just how radically different Jack Kirby's art style is. And how arresting it can be for people who are used to a different fluency in art of like, what am I used to looking at? What am I used to reading? How is this affecting me differently? And it requires a little education because it's so different from other artists at the time. And so, you know, for me, when I first saw Jack Kirby, I was like, uh, do I even like this? And it took some, uh, you know, time with that art for me to go like, oh no, not only do I like it, I love it. And he might be the best comic book artist ever. At the end of this segment, you're going to hear a new, particularly sweet, melodic voice, and that is the voice of Daniel Warren Johnson. Yeah, an artist like Kirby, who when I first encountered his work, I was like, do I like this? And then by the end of my time with Daniel Warren Johnson, I was like, I love it! I think, as I say, he grabs you by the throat. I mean, even, even when characters are standing around, they're not standing around. They're in movement. And, and I, think, I think I saw... Again, it was something I didn't really consciously understand, but I think I knew it without knowing it. I saw an interview, I think it is the Kirby documentary with Mike Royer, and he says he's the only artist whose characters move in time. So the fist coming at you is two seconds ahead of the foot in the background, you know? Um, It's difficult because it's kind of like you. When I was a kid, I took him absolutely for granted, as I did John Buscema because they were everywhere. Um, and it was like, Kirby's great. Yeah, of course he is. Why, why would you say anything different? But as an adult, as you say, when you start to study as an artist what he was actually doing, you're even more blown away. Uh, but then it wasn't until college that, like, I really learned, like, oh, wait, Jack Kirby. Like, he's not just a guy who, like, occasionally draws uh, the pictures in a Stan Lee comic. He's actually like the creative force behind all kinds of stuff. Again, I, I only I had a small sample group, you know, like I, I just had a couple of comics in, in my collection to go by. But, but um, you know, just uh, discovering the Jack Kirby collector and the uh, art of Jack Kirby book and, and all that stuff. It was like, oh, I really got like an education in, in who Jack Kirby was. Yeah, that's just um, that's been my observation 
for like sort of like great like pop culture works, you know, and like Jack Kirby, where it's not about you. Like you're like a lightning rod. And the better you are able to sort of synthesize everything that's going on around you, the, the better chance you'll have of making work that like speaks to people. Yeah, I think, I mean, I have, like probably a lot of us, I have tried, I printed out Kirby pencils from the Kirby Collector and tried to ink them just to see how hard or easy it would be. Um, and in a way, it is sort of easy because he puts it all there for you. So as opposed to if you look at some of Basema's pencils, they're basically roughs. Um, so when you look at a, an inker like Sinner, who really just put a sheen on it, not, not to downplay him, but he really just went over Kirby's work and just made it more. Whereas Vince, God, God love him, as we all know, made it less, um, you know, and rubbed out backgrounds and all this kind of thing. I was the same way when I saw the first time I saw Kirby's lines, I was the same exact way. I was like, I don't really understand this. And then the subtlety and the kind of like uh, the energy of it starts to wash over you in little pieces. And then all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, this is freeing. <laughs> Another thing that really inspires me about Kirby is just his longevity. You know, I'm not sure. Obviously he made amazing characters. Obviously he was a part of something like so much bigger than himself, you know, but he was still, he still had that kind of, he just had re a really solid presence in the industry all the way up till when he passed away. Um, and I, in no way do I like ever want to compare myself to Jack Kirby, but like, that's something that I, 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 I aspire to, you know, I don't know what his mentality was the whole time of his career. I'm sure he had ups and downs, but you know, I want to be able to do this for the rest of my life. I want to be making stuff. I want to be making stories and, I look at the way that he just kind of tackled every new project with such like zeal and excitement. And um, it's something that I want to emulate. But this is comic book couples counseling. And as much as we love the drama behind the panel with Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, it's the melodrama within the panel that really speaks to me. And I love Tom Scholey's take on the Reed and Sue relationship. Yeah. Because I think that um, by focusing on that early crush on the Submariner, he's really put his finger right on the hot button of what makes them interesting and how the tension in the relationship that was created in the 1960s still exists today. Going back to that Fantastic Four treasury, there's like the one issue which um, like, you know, some people uh, make the argument that this one might have been written like solely by Kirby, like even even the, the dialogue. Um, and that one makes such a great case for the Sue Namor relationship. Like they really are like the rest of the Fantastic Four are bullying her. She's like. I can't help it. I, you know, I have feelings for it. Like, you, you know, stay out of my business. This is, you know, you guys don't understand. They're like, how can you like him? He's our enemy. He's, you know, this and that. Like, that was a really poignant moment. That really, like, stuck with me. And I could see, like, I could see all the reasons why intellectually it would make all the sense in the world for her to uh, marry Reed and that she does have a, a real fondness and love for him and stuff. But it's like, yeah, this, the Submariner thing does, doesn't make a lot of sense in the light of day, but it's like, you know, she loves him. <laughs> like, you know, it, it, like, and it would destroy her life 
it would destroy her life if she were to go off with the, the submariner. And it's like, that just seemed like a really compelling, like it, to me, I was looking for like, where's the story with the Fantastic Four? Where's, what's the thing that makes like Fantastic Four grand design worth doing? I, I don't want it to just be a retread, you know, like where's, what's, what's the thing I can do to, to give it a reason for being. And that just screamed out to me. And, and it, and it came up in my research too, because beyond the Kirby era in the seventies, the writers keep, would keep having like, um, you know, Sue serves, uh, read with divorce papers and runs off with, with the submarine. You know? So I thought like, this is part of this book's DNA, like it or not. And I happen to like it. I happen to like that. I know some people don't. I like that aspect. And I like that it's part of this book's DNA. And I know other, other creators uh, uh, have, have you know, pursued that avenue also. And it, it spoke to me. And, and so I, I went with that. I mean, they call them the first family. They, they are the archetypal Marvel team because the JLA was just a bunch of people with the same personality standing around really as much as I loved the JLA in the, in the 70s it kind of was they didn't really have distinct personalities you know but then in, in the early stories I don't particularly like Sue she's a bit of a dish rag I don't, I don't really like Reed that much he's a bit of an arse um, I don't really like Johnny <laughs> it's Ben really but, the, the, but that's okay that you know sometimes comics don't want to be your friend it's okay if I don't like Reed that much because he is an arse he is a know-all um, and he does keep screwing up and failing to cure Ben through his own hubris. So that's fascinating. Um, they're just fascinating people, aren't they? I love Pete just saying that they are fascinating people and you don't necessarily need to like them. And that's true. And that has helped me understand Reed a little bit better. And especially covering him on this podcast in the relationship between Sue and Reed, I have a totally new understanding of who they are as a couple. But... When you first read Fantastic Four, the character that immediately stands out, and it feels like the character that Jack Kirby in particular loves more than anyone is Ben Grimm as The Thing. When you look at the Fantastic Four, Ben is the easiest to understand from the group because I think we all have experienced what he is going through. And on a routine basis, like that sense of self-loathing and doubt, Ben puts it all out there on his rocky exterior. It's kind of funny having what Pete Dory says juxtaposed with what Clay says, because Pete is going like, he's my hero. He's the one I, I wanted to be growing up where he has this conflict, but he's snappy and he's, um, you know, strong. And then Chapman goes on to say, but he's inherently tragic. And what makes him so sad is something that is entirely out of his control. And I think that that's what makes Ben Grimm so relatable because in one way he is empowered by his strength and his stature, but at the same time powerless because he looks like a big ro orange rock guy. Yeah, absolutely. And you can see why that is the character that a young reader goes to first. You know, it's going to take you some time to appreciate uh, Reed and Sue and even Johnny, who's the teenager. But because Johnny is so cool and confident, like a young comic book reader 
isn't necessarily going to see themselves, or I certainly didn't necessarily see myself in Johnny, but I did see me in Ben. I wanted to be him, I think. I wanted to be that kind of kind of snappy and... Um in a way, in a way, he is comfortable with it. He's, he's a much, he's much more comfortable as the thing as it, than he is as Ben Grimm. And yes, he's just an ordinary schmo. But I think it's it's that sarcasm and it's that um, that snappiness that I like about him because he just deals with it, doesn't he? Um, I mean, I don't know in Marvel time how long because there was something about years ago about that it's five years of of. Marvel life for real life or something like that so let's say he's been like that for 30 years well you've either got to adjust to it or you're going to go insane so so he does and he's still he's still Ben Grimm who drinks at the corner bar that's what I love about him and just to go back to Stan and Jack quickly that's why I have him talk my Jack my version of Jack talk like Ben Grimm because they are the same and it's a funny it's a funny way to write dialogue I mean, if I'm being totally honest with where the Fantastic Four comes into my life, like I think of the thing, I think of Ben Grimm, and I think that of all the characters that Marvel produced, I think the first time I was aware of tragedy uh, in comics like I mean, I mean, like yeah, there's Batman losing his, you know, Bruce Wayne, you know, sees his family get murdered, and like that's tragedy. But like something about Ben Grimm, like really affected me in this way that no other uh, comic book character had at that point when I first encountered Fantastic Four, and it was something about the fact that like the thing was always the thing. Like he never, he could never go back to being Ben you know, his, his humanity was kind of encased in this, this, in that rock. And I always found it really heartbreaking that his character didn't have the same kind of attributes as like the human torch or, you know, like it was just like, you know, beyond getting the raw end of the deal and like, you know, uh, everyone kind of, I don't know, like he could easily be a punchline and it's clobbering time, but like, to me, like, I just really felt connected to the idea that like there was something inherently sad and tragic about his character. And I just, I don't know, like that, that kind of was an eye opening experience for me personally as a, as a, a young reader. So that's, that's honestly what Fantastic Four will always be as far as I'm concerned. I wish I could go back in time and ask more follow-up questions of Tom Brevoort about the initial appeal of Johnny, because I think that he was a slightly younger reader when he started getting into the FF. Yeah, he was, yeah. And I feel like every nine-year-old boy feels like they have the potential to be Johnny Storm, but the second puberty starts hitting right. in and their skin starts breaking out and they start growing yeah. weirdly and awkwardly, they go like, oh, in actuality, I am, I'm Ben. I'm yeah. Ben Grimm. Yeah. I am a freak and I'm disgusting. Yeah, 13-year-old, you're, you're the thing. <laughs> you're the thing for sure. We also have to acknowledge that one of the great not great. One of the failings of Fantastic Four is the unrelatability of Sue and how, like, that's 
having to be renegotiated all of the time of, well, maybe it's because she wants to be an actress or maybe it's because she wants to be a fashion designer, like, or maybe she really is a scientist trying to find something about Sue that makes her both strong and disempowered like Ben? Well, I think we had just have to acknowledge that we got five creators, friends of this podcast, who happen to be dudes, right? And so mm -hmm. they're all gonna bring very thing-like opinions to this podcast. And I would love to talk to other creators who maybe uh, are more attracted to Sue. But yes, Sue's story is the most frustrating, especially for a modern reader going back and reading the 60s stories. She gets the short shrift over and over and over again, which is why I think that Tom Scholey's Fantastic Four Grand Design is so critical because it tackles that issue head on and exposes the misogyny within that group. It goes back to the Fantastic Four being a product, almost like a time capsule of the 1960s and goes back to that creation of Stan and Jack and who they were and what their perspectives were. Yeah, and I love getting this opportunity to talk about creation, who did what with Tom Brevoort. And even though we said at the beginning of this episode that we're not really making this show about that, we had to address a couple things with Tom as the senior executive vice president with the recent solicitation that came out regarding the Fantastic Four tribute that's gonna publish in November. On that solicit, it says that Fantastic Four was written by Stanley and Jack Kirby, putting both names on equal footing. And that's a huge deal. But is it? Because the conversation about who's more responsible, Stan or Jack, is an unknown entity. There is no getting to the bottom of that at this point. Right. But the thing that we know is true is that the Fantastic Four is the most influential comic book in the Marvel Universe, and that is the thing that we're celebrating. Yeah, and so when we bring up the solicitations to Tom, Tom's gonna say like, look, here's the deal. I, I wrote that that solicit, and that's really no, no more complicated than the fact that, you know, the material that we're using to create the version of that story that's being done now, the original comic, the original words and the original pictures were done by both of them. Uh, and I don't believe it's proper to say, well, you know, it was written by Stan uh, and, and all of the contribution that Jack made to it, either conceptually or even visually, given that the artists that are recreating it are starting from Jack's pages, um, for him not to be credited there as one of the people that did the original story and thus is one of the writers. So, so to me, that was, yeah, again, I've seen the, you know, the, the, the little uh, storm of opinions in the last day or so of people going, Oh my God, they said this thing. And I, I to me, I don't think that, that, that it's too complicated. We're, we're remaking fantastic four. Number one, we're starting with fantastic four. Number one, fantastic four. Number one was by Lee and Kirby ergo, uh, Lee and Kirby are, are both represented here, even though Jack will not have drawn a line of this new version. I think Jack is, is I think his day is getting is coming and getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, I struggled with the whole stand thing, um, but then I just thought, 
you know, they were real people. Um, they made mistakes. Maybe they would do them differently if they could do it again. Um, in a way, that's kind of, I almost feel like that's not my place to judge them. I do kind of get, I'm always happy to talk about it, but when sometimes somebody on Twitter will try and start an argument with me about Stan and Jack and the relationship. Oh, Stan did this and Stan did that. And I, I always just go, look, mate, it was 50 years ago. Get over it. You know, we still we still have the comics. Yes, they made mistakes. They made errors. They, they screwed things up. But we weren't there. We don't know. Nobody really knows. And I, and I still think Stan, and I was at a convention a couple of years ago. I remember conventions. Um, and Royal Thomas was there. Royal Thomas was there, which was amazing. Um, and, and he said, look, it would never have happened without both of them. Um, and then he said, with Ditko as the Holy Ghost. <laughs> um, but, but that's right, it wouldn't. You know, I, me and my friends gravitated to Marvel not just because of Jack and Steve and all the other wonderful artists and writers, but because Stan made you want to be a Marvelite. DC didn't have that. Uh, they tried it a few years later with Dick Giordano, but it didn't work. But you were you were totally. I am. A, I mean, I still have a friend. I was I was annoying by mentioning him, but one of my one of my oldest friends does not buy DC. I mean, he does, but under sufferance. The rest of the time, it's like no, I buy Marvel, and that's it. And that's because of Stan. I would say there's a few things. You know, obviously the drawing style, obviously the creating of new worlds. Um, but also, you know, one thing I really appreciate is kind of Kirby kind of like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to say this. I'm saying this with the utmost respect, uh, Mr. Kirby, but he was the first one through the breach and he was the first one to like get riddled with the bullets of the corporate American, you know, comic book culture of, you know, just learning how like, man, how you can be taken advantage of. Um, and as he kind of had the streets, he, he, he was, he was forced to learn the street smarts before any of us had to learn it. A lot of these guys did. Um, and I really appreciate that. You know, it, it look, it's not like I'm entering into any relationship with a company being like, how are you going to screw me over? You know, cause there's no way to live or work. But at the same time, it's like, you know, it just kind of following, Kirby's story, it, it makes you wise to just how things work. I just enjoyed sort of like riffing off of what Jack Kirby was doing and what Stan Lee was doing. Like that part of it was so much fun. It felt like being in like, like a jazz combo or something with like some legendary musicians and stuff. So th there's that, but like um, the fantastic, uh, the, the Stan Lee parts, there are a couple moments where like I, go into Stan Lee mode and lean into like some of his like excesses, some of like the purple pros. Cause I, I do like love a lot of that stuff too, but mainly through the series, I was trying to write in like an anti Stan Lee style where Stan Lee would make things as verbose and, and, and try to make things as impressive as possible, puff things up, build things up where I was trying to like deflate balloons, just cut right to the point, say it as plainly and clearly uh, and, and maybe undersell uh, things. So we're now entering into the final segment of the episode, and we got to talk about its anniversary, right? We got to say happy birthday, Fantastic Four, 60 years old. That's insane. 
What is it about this comic book series that still resonates with a modern audience? A modern audience that we have admitted to saying like, we didn't quite get it on initial glance, but once you get into these pages, what is there to find for the modern reader? And I think what you find is legacy. Yeah. Like the Fantastic Four is like Abraham in the desert. <laughs> Upon that one family, nations were built. Was there a little family drama? Yes, there was. But the Marvel Universe was built upon flawed people. And this idea that people who are making mistakes and causing drama and are not perfect can still be heroes. But even Fantastic Four number one, you know, to, to in, in that month, that was a comic that was being published. And nobody thought, right, this is going to run for 60 years. Nobody thought this is going to run for five years. It was just, we're going to put out a comic and hopefully it will do well. And if it does well, we'll keep doing them. And if we're lucky, maybe we'll get 12 issues out of it. Um, and so, so the fact that, you know, it was the one that worked and it was the one where, uh, you know, the, the masterminds of the Marvel universe, Lee and Kirby in particular, um, you know, began the process of reinventing modern superhero comics. Uh, you know, it's still though very much at the, at the outset of that. Uh, and it, it doesn't really look markedly different from the other monster comics that came out that month with with ordinary people in street clothes contending with giant stone monsters from outer space. There's like a sort of like ping-ponging of like the past and, and, and the future and things that, that go on in these kind of works because I'm like so much of just like the larger pop culture kind of originates from Fantastic Four, Kirby's Fantastic Four, and, and, and you know, the whole like 60s Marvel thing that has just reshaped the cultural landscape that I was born in and that we were all born in. So it's like hard for us to separate, you know, the, this from that. So it's like, you know, I encountered, uh, you know, Darth Vader, you know, Luke, I am your father or, or I am your father. Um, I encountered that before I ever encountered, you know, Dark Side and, and uh, Orion or, you know, uh, you know, any of these other things. Yeah, I encountered Unicron before I encountered Galactus. So there's this like weird, you know, and, and so I'm aware of that, um, you know, like the irony of that, uh, you know, but it's, it's so much. So when I reread this stuff, it's like, oh, you know, that, you know, let's like, like that plot point. It's like he's uh, Johnny's father is being directed by the the scroll emperor to do and so it just it's like yeah let's just let's lean into this you know this this thing and make it you know you know put it in into into like a, a parlance that you know somebody who you know is uh you know under 70 or whatever you know can, will really get fantastic for one uh, you know, was a comic that sort of changed the course of, of comic book history and changed Marvel and everything. But you wouldn't necessarily know that just looking at it as an individual issue and a release, because what it really is, is it was the first stone in this large structure that was built. Um, and you needed to have the second issue and the third issue and the fourth issue and see 
uh, how these characters were brought to life and, and uh, you know, new characters were introduced and how these things were developed to really, you know, have a, have a, a sense of it. Um, it's not like Fantastic Four One is a bad comic, but it's not necessarily such a, a startling thing, particularly when you see it among the other, I don't know, 20 releases that are collected in the omnibus that you go, oh my God, somebody invented the light bulb and, and yeah, I could suddenly see, um, it's, it's just a nice, a nice comic. Um, and it's a nice comic at a time when Marvel was publishing a wide variety of material, most of which was, uh, I, I, I'm trying to find a bit, a nicer word than hack work, um, you know, it, it was it was by the numbers work. Like every everybody who worked on these these titles and these stories were genuine craftsmen with superior skills, certainly better than than the skills that I've got. Um, but they weren't really doing anything that was designed to stand the test of time. Certainly nothing that anybody thought. Yeah, sixty years from now, this will be in a massive hardcover book on people's shelves, and libraries will stock it. You know, this was all ephemeral entertainment that would be thrown away immediately after somebody read it or after it was handed from person to person, uh, you know, as different kids or whomever read it until it eventually disintegrated. I don't know. There's like a like maybe maybe they are the kind of lodestar. Like there's like almost like a North Star kind of quality to them. Like you kind of return home to. (laughs) Like you have your walkabout. Like the kids, they always leave home, and like mom and pops will always be there waiting for you if you want to come back. And that's the fantastic four. It's like, yeah, yeah, you can read X-Men or you can go off and (laughs) read your Morbius. But like, you always come home to fantastic four. They're going to be on the front porch in their rocking chairs, just being like, Hey, honey, come home. I really do feel like, that quote from Clay really puts this lovely pin in our conversation, having this beautiful mental image of the Fantastic Four welcoming the rest of the universe home. It just reminds you that Clay is the writer of the group, and it's because he makes words so good. It is an awesome image, and it's a very comforting image because the Fantastic Four are a comforting comic. They're always going to be there for you, the reader. And as the originators of the Marvel Universe, they represent everything we love about Marvel, this idea that human drama is just as interesting as and as engaging as cosmic drama. And if you really want to have some fun, go pick up an issue of Fantastic Four number one by Stan and Jack and pick up an issue from Dan Slott's current Fantastic Four and see how many of those original ideas from the 1961 book are still present in the current book, but it really doesn't feel like a fuddy-duddy comic book right now. Every time a new writer takes on the Fantastic Four, they drill into what Stan and Jack gave us, and then they find their own path, their own tunnel to do something new. And that's what's so exciting about comic books as a whole, especially from the big two, is how do you take these tried and true concepts and find originality? And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, and that's the excitement to reading comic books. I also really appreciate Brevoort's perspective as the editor of the group going like, on the day 
that they put out Fantastic Four number one. They didn't go, well, maybe they were like, we put out a great comic book today. But they weren't thinking like, this, we have now created a legacy. No, it was something that you rolled up and you put in your back pocket and you sat on and then you threw it away once it got crumpled. Yeah, like they didn't they didn't go in with the intention of laying the bedrock of an empire. Yeah. They were like, we got like we got a job to do because we have like like Jack Kirby was like, look at all of the mouths I have to feed. Right. I mean, it is a job. It is an art, but it is also a job. And I feel like this transitions us nicely into our reflection conversation and talking about like what life lessons have we pulled from having this ongoing conversation with the Fantastic Four. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about what has Fantastic Four as a franchise, as a concept, as an entity taught me about me instead of like going, what have Sue and Reed taught me about our relationship? It's a completely separate narrative, isn't right, it? Right, right. And like my big takeaway, having now talked about Jack Kirby, the King of Comics with Tom Scholey, having talked with Abraham Reisman about Stan Lee with his True Believer comic, having now talked to Tom Brevoort on this episode about who did what, I think where I ultimately fall is who did what is not as interesting as what they did. And going forward, I'm sure I'm still going to explore, you know, speculations and arguments regarding the creation of the Marvel Universe. Steve Ditko, Jack Kirby, John Buscema, you know, all those rad people, John Romita, you know, like like those those fights still need to be had. But at the end of the day, what's most important to me as not just a reader, but as a human being, is that the work that was produced in whatever manner. So Fantastic Four number one means a lot to me, and that's important. That being said, though, if you are an artist or you are a writer or a creative of any kind and you want to be continuously attached to the thing that you made, save your receipts. Yeah, listen to Daniel Warren Johnson. Learn from Jack Kirby. Because it is the piece of art that people engage with. And so you have to make sure that you are continuously attached to that piece of art. Because the second someone wants to swoop in and take ownership over the thing that you made, yeah. You're screwed. Yeah, they will. So that was definitely one of my lessons. Like if when we're making art, our identity has to be attached to that art and we have to include ourselves in the narrative around that art. My other big takeaway is when you are doing the day to day of your work, you should treat each day like this is the day I'm creating a legacy. This could be the work that is the bedrock of the rest of my creative life. That's hard to do in the moment sometimes. You know, we're doing a podcast right now. Is this our legacy? <laughs> like, it's scary to even think in terms of legacy. I don't like to do it. But, like, so I, I'm of two minds of this because, like, part of it is, like, you have to do the work and you have to do the work every single day like it's a job. Right. Like the reason Fantastic Four exists is because they had to put out a comic. Right. And they had to put out a comic that people would buy. And if they didn't put out Fantastic Four number one, they would have put out something else. Right. You know? Um, but also, I feel like you have to 
when you make something, you have to think like, the life for this piece of art only begins today. You know, like it's going to continue to exist in the universe and change everything around it in a small way, whether it's a big splash or a small splash. Yeah, I mean, creation is an act of hope and you should never dismiss that hope, right? Embrace it. Uh, so yeah, that's gonna do it for us. Uh, major thanks, hugest thanks to everyone who joined this episode. Tom Brevoort, Tom Scholey, Pete Dory, Clay McLeod Chapman, Daniel Warren Johnson, I mean, we are forever grateful that you agreed to do this little uh, podcast. And to you listening, thank you for listening. Thank you for partaking in this conversation. Uh, let your friends know about this episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. It's something new. Like, does it sound as good as I want it to sound? I don't know. I've worked so hard editing this beast. You have no idea how many hours went into this one hour, but it was a lot. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm being a little defensive because I'm looking for words of affirmation. Just tell me I did a good job, guys. Yeah. But most importantly, send those words of affirmation to our guests. Links to all their socials are in the show notes. Go seek them out. Go read their comics. And once you've done that, uh, come right back to this space because we are going to have a new episode next week, hopefully. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Not hopefully. Uh, we've been talking so much about Marvel Comics over the last several months. We've been obsessed with that company. And it's time to give a little love across the pond to DC Comics. We are starting our Green Arrow and Black Canary series. And we are beginning with a classic issue from Green Lantern, Green Arrow, Number 78, where Black Canary falls under the spell of Joshua and his cult. Spooky. It's going to be a really interesting place to start with that romance. Uh, so I'm, I'm very excited about our Black Canary Green Arrow series. And then after that, we are going to have our Martian Manhunter Unite the Seven podcast tie-in event talking about the Steve Orlando and Riley Rosmo series, 12 issues. It's an epic yeah, it's a great comic, guys. So get those books in your hands. Start reading before our episodes drop. Okay, Brad, our legacy awaits. Where can our listeners send the words of affirmation to you? Oh, no, so much responsibility. But you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical band art, send them over to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes and these interviews in their entirety. Yes, over on Patreon. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. You know, you can be stretchy, but then you go back to having a, a rockin' dad bod. But then, like Ben Grimm... <laughs> 
<laughs> he gets his one day, his one day a year. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, I was like, I want to touch the rock and dad bod. Like I want to, <laughs> what is the rock and dad bod? Like that's a, Oh my God. The silver Fox. The rubbery yes. silver fox. That's right. The rubbery silver fox. I bet you he's amazing in bed. I bet you Sue is extremely happy. 